much as we've learned about ocular surface disease, there is still so much yet to be discovered. The good news is this creates a world of opportunity for eye care providers. The goal of this podcast is to better understand this chronic and complex condition and keep you up to date on the advances being made in its diagnosis and treatment. So let's get to the point. Welcome to another episode of the To The Point podcast. My name is Jackie Garlick, and I am joined by my co-host, Jessalyn Quint, and we are so excited to bring on a guest to talk to us about something I think many people dislike, neuro. But if you have ever seen this person's lectures, they are packed with people because she is well-known for providing the most comprehensive information in a really easy to digest way on a really hard topic. So please welcome to the podcast, Dr. Jackie Thies. I'm going to talk a little bit about Jackie. She's an optometrist with residency training in neurooptometry and strabismus ocular motor dysfunction. She is an international speaker and published author with clinical experience and research interest in photophobia and ocular motor disorders related to traumatic brain injury, multiple sclerosis, mild cognitive impairment, Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's disease, and stroke. Dr. Thies sees patients in private practice at Virginia Neurooptometry, which is located at the Transdisciplinary Concussion Care Center of Virginia. She is also the Chief Medical Officer for C-Light Technologies. She's President-Elect of the Virginia Optometric Association and former winner of the Young Optometrist of the Year in California in 2019. Jackie, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you. I'm excited to be here. (laughs) We are excited to have you. You are all over the place, and it's so fun to just see all the good that you're doing for the profession. Especially in this like topic that I think is really challenging. I mean, you're you, literally, I've been to several of your lectures and they are always packed because people I think struggle with neuro in general, and you have a great, you do such a good job breaking that down and making it understandable for people who are not deep in the weeds like you are with neuro. So thank you for that. And thanks for taking the time tonight. Oh yeah. Well, thanks for that because I actually had one of my best friends has come to my lectures and he's like, some people kind of trickle information at me. And he's like, and then you just kind of fire hose me in the face with things I don't know. And I was like, oh, I don't know if that's my intent, but <laughs> no, it is. It is like a fire hose, but it's so engaging. Like, it's like, oh my God. Okay. Yeah, I got it. Okay. Yep. Next slide. It's just, it's great. You do a wonderful job with that, which, you know, is why we wanted to talk to you tonight about, um, this dry eye We're you know, this is a dry eye podcast. So we are trying to just educate ourselves, educate our colleagues on our, you know, how to better treat our dry eye patients. And there is one aspect that we haven't covered much, and that is the neurological dry eye patient, which you have a phenomenal lecture on that. So I was hoping that you could just kind of walk us through the different types of neurological dry eye patients that we might see and maybe start us off that way. Sure. So I think it's always fun to talk on a dry eye lecture as a neuro person, because people, when they hear neuro, they immediately think like double vision and then voodoo, vision therapy. Um, And I would say a large part of my practice is that, Um, but it's also a lot of dry eye treatment. And a lot of that is because actually patients who have neurologic disorders are more likely to have dry eye. 
And so there's a couple of theories on that. And so we'll kind of go into that because I think we had talked earlier about, you know, what would make you think, oh, this is a neuro like problem. And for me in my practice, everyone that walks in the door has a neuro problem. So it's always on my mind. And I just always remember to look for dry eye. And so we have to kind of like regroup a little bit of the opposite of they're coming in to see you for dry eye. How can you maybe red flag? Oh, this is neuro. Um, so the first thing I always say is first, always just look at the anatomy and the pathophysiology of what someone's complaining about it. Everything to me has to make sense. And that's one of the reasons I've always hated dry eye treatment and dry eye as a disease is it doesn't make sense to me. Um, and so it's, it's funny, but it's like, give me a cranial nerve palsy. It's easy to map. I can fix it. It's easy. Dry eye is not easy, um, because it can be a thousand things. And the symptoms and the signs don't always match up. And until I started kind of deep diving into the anatomy of it, I used to hate dry eye for that reason of like, it just doesn't make sense. Um, and then when I started to really pick through it, I realized the cases that didn't make sense when you really look at it, it makes sense why they don't make sense. And it's because it's a neurological problem. So that's the kind of my first pearl is if a patient comes in complaining of dry eye, and you use fluorescein dye and you do a T-bot and you look at their eyelids and you see, you know, Demodex, if it makes sense that they have dry eye um, and they feel it and their timeline is kind of an acute problem or maybe they've had it for a while and it, you start treating it and it starts to get better, you're probably fine, right? That That's kind of the, the biggest pearl I can have is if it looks like dry eye, smells like dry eye and treats like dry eye, it's probably just dry eye. Um, and, and a lot of my patients, cause I'll get that sometimes when I, when I, um, have worked on cases with brain injury and, and people say, you know, is it the brain injury that caused the dry eye or is it, um, where was it pre-existing? And a lot of that's just timeline. Some patients will tell you like, yeah, I've always kind of had dryness. Um, a lot of my patients with tr traumatic brain injury, though, will say, no, I, I literally only started having dry eye after my brain injury. So that is the other thing for me, right? It's just the case history. When did it start? And did it start after an injury or an inflammation or a medication? Um, there's a lot of patients where they neglect to mention to you like, oh, yeah, that's around the time I started this one medication I'm on. Um, and so one of the things that I do in my practice that I've always done um, for an efficiency thing for me is I see them for dry eye and then I have a little book that I send them home with. It's like a homework book and they it goes through every single thing that could possibly cause dry eye, including antihistamines, sleeping under a fan, driving, right, driving with the air conditioning on. And I have them and there's a checkbox and they go through and they checkbox every single one. And so on their follow up, we go through their checkboxes. Um, so that I can get an idea of all the things that might be causing dry eye for them, because rarely is it one thing. Um, and the other thing about the conversation on the follow-up is like, what do you want to give up? Right? Like some people live with a spouse that they cannot give up that fan. <laughs> right. <laughs> so that means that we're going to have to fix that. Um, and those things are environmental. And so how do you weed out that it's neuro? You have to weed out all the other stuff first. Um, and so that's one of the reasons I have that checklist is because if they're not getting better with their dry eye and we go through all the environmental things or the added medications, that's when I start leaning more towards it's a neurologic origin. Um, and so that's kind of the first, first way that I'll, I'll go about it. If the patient didn't come in, come in with a brain injury already, or some type of other neurologic disease. Cause we know that sometimes with dry eye, so many patients sometimes are asymptomatic. Are any of the neuro patients asymptomatic? 
I would say, well, asymptomatic, you mean like you see them and they look awful and they look fine or they say they're fine? Uh, correct. That like clinically you'll see something, but maybe not necessarily neurotrophic keratitis, not like that level, but sometimes just typical dry patients are in denial or they've had it for so long. They don't realize that they have it or if they've had a brain injury decades ago, are they ever asymptomatic or can they usually pinpoint it to when the injury occurred? So, and, and that's a good point. So I think there's two splits. So you're going to have a group. So neurologically, you're going to have the group of patients that they have neurotrophic corneas and I, they might not have keratitis yet, but they have a neurotrophic cornea because they should feel it. Um, and so we always think, you know, to have neurotrophic keratitis, you have to have a certain amount of epithelial damage. Well, you'll get there eventually if you don't feel it. Um, but you can have a neurotrophic cornea. And so you're going to see signs that the patient feels fine. That's not good. That's not normal. That means that the trigeminal nerve is not working appropriately. You're supposed to feel pain. Um, the opposite end of the spectrum is going to be the neuro neuropathic pain patients. And that, and that's where you look at the eye and the eye looks fine, but they're telling you it's incredibly painful. It burns, it stings, it tears. And you can see both of those actually in patients who've had um, history. Rarely do you see both simultaneously in the same patient, right? Kind of impossible, but not improbable. We have had like a couple of crazy cases like that once or twice in my practice, but more often it's, it's one or the other. Um, so for example, a really common one that we'll see is, um, I see a lot of patients for blurry vision post-operatively after brain surgery or a brain tumor removal. And like the acoustic neuromas in particular to get to an acoustic neuroma, they're usually going through cranial nerve seven. And so they're usually, and sometimes they're damaging and, and it's, you know, you're saving someone's life or, or saving their hearing. And, and so there's some damage that happens and those patients come in and they can't feel one side of their face, or if the facial nerve is impacted, right. They're not blinking appropriately. And so those patients um, normally are actually coming in, not for pain, but for blur. And it's because they actually, at that point of neurotrophic keratitis um, to the point that I started doing educational seminars sometimes for um, post-operative staff or inpatient brain injury units or, or things like that on how can we prevent neurotrophic keratitis and it's lubricate, lubricate, lubricate after surgery. Just assume your patients aren't closing their eyes after they've had some type of surgery that could possibly damage cranial nerve seven, three or five. Um, and why I say seven, three and five is because we know that those are going to be what's going to be innervating um, how you feel the eye, how you blink, um, and then um, kind of the musculature around the eye, which will also impact um, how well you're going to be able to maintain the ocular surface. So Jackie, when you, the way it sounds like you're, you're addressing these patients seems very normal, right? Like you're going to start with treating them for dry eye, presuming that everything makes sense in what they're saying. So it's the patient, and this can go for anything. If a patient isn't getting better, you have to really step back and then sort of reassess, uh, you know, the diagnosis that you've come up with. Are you at these follow-up visits? Let's um, let's take a neuropathic patient. So the patient that you know uh, clinically looks very normal, but complains to you about a lot of things, um, light sensitivity, burning, a lot of dry eye. The symptoms, you know, outweigh the signs in this patient. How are you handling that patient in terms of treatment? Um, well, I will say so. The one nice, so neurotrophic keratitis is different, but with neuropathic pain. Um, you can do a quick in-office test, um, the preparacane challenge, right? So you can just put preparacane in 
And technically, if the pain is coming from the eye or the peripheral receptors of that first order neuron, then when you put in preparacaine, their pain goes away. And so if it's typical, just primary dry eye related eye pain, you put in preparacaine and they feel better. Um, and so that, but if you put it in and they tell you they feel the exact same, well, that means that it's neuropathic pain. Um, if you see signs of dry eye, you still want to treat those. Um, but if, if you, if they still feel those signs of pain, you have to red flag. I think this patient has neuropathic pain. Um, a lot of times what will happen is the patient will say it feels a little better, but the pain's still there, which means the patient has both. They have, so what the preparacaine does is it dulls nociceptive pain. Um, it doesn't dull neuropathic pain and in dry eye, especially chronic untreated dry eye, you can get both types. Um, and so essentially what happens, and this is actually what changed my method of let's proactively treat dry eye. I was never the proactive dry eye treater. I was the, I'll treat it if you complain about it person, um, was understanding how neuropathic pain works. And so if somebody comes in and you see them and they don't have, they're not complaining that much about dry eye. Um, so it's more, maybe it's neurotrophic or maybe they just have a low pain or high pain tolerance. Over time, the inflammation from the dry eye itself will damage the pain receptors in the eye. And when those get damaged, the pain threshold lowers, which means that over time, maybe they'll get better and maybe they'll make their eyes look better. But if their pain threshold has lowered because of chronic damage to those nociceptors, now any little thing hurts. And so they're hyperallergic. And so the nice thing is if it's, we call this pain sensitization, if it's only peripheral, you can actually treat the dry eye and it will get better. So there are certain treatments, right? Like autologous serum tears. And those ones are absolutely going to help with regrowth of the neuron. And that, that's been shown to help with peripheral pain sensitization. Um, so for patients where you're worried about that or they're hyperalgesic, those are great, great options. The problem is that if you don't treat those and they centrally have, have central pain sensitization, then it doesn't matter what you throw in the eye. The pain, patient's not getting better. Um, so in my patients, right. So if you're in a dry eye clinic where the, well, in a dry eye clinic, you guys are treating dry eye. The problem actually lives in primary care where you're not treating dry eye and you are creating these problems by not educating the patient on proactive lubrication of the eye and the importance of eye health. And if they're not treating it, they actually set themselves up for really bad dry eye later and possible either neurotrophic corneas or neuropathic pain, depending on kind of which way their eyes end up going. Um, and then it also depends on what else they have going on. So if they have other types of things that could make them have nerve injury, for instance, like they are on some type of chemo or they've had radiation or they're diabetic, or they have an autoimmune disease, or they've had a history of herpes, those types of things are going to damage the nerves as well. And so those are, again, those, when should I red flag, they might have peripheral pain is if they have any of those things on their review of systems. That's also like a, Hey, you might want to be careful with those patients. For a patient who have, you know, we've identified that they have this neuropathic pain and maybe need something a little bit more of a neuro involvement outside of just serum tears or, you know, um, maybe even something that can kind of stimulate kind of the, the cornea human growth factor. What, like, what do those next steps look like? Like, I feel like so many people who are in the dry eye circle came into dry eye because they're not neuro people. So is this a <laughs> referral? Is this, you know, and who is that to? What do those next steps look like so we can make sure that our neuro dry patients are just getting the care that they need? 
Sure. So I will say that um, it well, so it depends on, on what kind of neuro. Um, and I say that meaning if it is somebody who doesn't have another neurologic disease going on and it's a dry eye patient who's developing neuropathic pain, usually I will send those patients because I get those sometimes too. I'm sending them to a corneal specialist. Um, and so corneal specialists right now are actually very much, and I've talked to a lot of them because a lot of them are getting into pain management. Um, and what is their steps? And a lot of them are still going to go through every single thing. And their theory is you have to fail one in order to often qualify for another. So, and you'll see that with other types of things too. And that's just kind of how the game works, unfortunately, in healthcare. Um, same with migraine meds to sometimes get the one you really need, you have to fail all the other ones first. Um, and so they're going to do the same thing you do. So as an optometrist, you can do a lot for them by being like, I put them on NPATS and they failed it. I put them on cyclosporin and they failed it. And I put them on autologous serum and they failed it. And so going through like what I already tried, I tried punctal plugs and they failed it. So trying those things and letting them fail can actually help the corneal specialist expedite their care. Um, there's some other drugs. So nerve growth factors, umbilical cord serum tears. I mean, there's a lot of new things that are coming down the pipeline for topicals. Um, but what happens if you've tried all of those and those haven't worked? Um, that's when you actually want to refer to like a pain specialist. Um, and so if we want to think about where are we going next? So there is some looking at when we do pain specialists. So we have um, a physical therapist in our office who does chronic pain, chronic headache type management. Um, and so sometimes what people don't recognize is that you can actually have pain referred from other places in your musculoskeletal system. So I've had patients where they have dry eye, but they always assume the pain was the dry eye, but secretly their pain was a neck problem. And we send it to our neck person and all of a sudden their eye pain is gone. And so the neck can refer a ton of pain to the eye. Um, and so being able to, and the problem with that, right, is especially for neck pain, guess when it gets worse? When they're on the computer because they're in a weird neck position on the computer. And so they're coming to you and you're like, oh, it's definitely dry eye. And it's actually referred musculoskeletal pain. Um, and so the nice thing about that is that can get fixed if you send it to the right place, but sometimes you're just really ping-ponging people places. So I always say do a, a quick neck screen, literally, um, and I've given actually our PT and I gave a cool lecture on referred cervicogenic eye pain and how you can do a palpation exam to figure it out. Um, but you can literally palpate the neck and literally in office, you like touch their neck and all of a sudden the patient's like, oh, my eye pain's gone. And you're like, cool, get out of my chair. It's not an eye problem. So that's one. Uh, you can also send patients to, so if they have a brain injury or the, if they have some other, that's the other thing too, right? Is that they can be having pain from some of the other conditions that they have. So if they have a brain injury, we have a physical medicine doctor who does multidisciplinary care and either he can put patients on drugs that can help with pain. So for instance, we know a lot of patients pain gets better on antidepressants or on other modulators like gabapentin or other neurologic drugs. And so pain specialists can do it. Physi physiatrists are really great. Again, it depends on how complicated the patient is and the other things that they have going on. Um, anesthesiologists, I think are getting more into pain. A lot of people are doing nerve blocks. We've had a lot of patients go get nerve blocks. Some of, one of my patients also has like occipital neuralgia. And so she's um, actually getting a surgical implant um, to get rid of the neuralgia. So it's just being able, I think our job is to be able to figure out is the eye pain because the problem and it's twofold is you have all these patients that are coming to see you for dry eye but dry eye happens with migraine and you treat the migraine and the dry eye goes away dry eye happens with occipital neuralgia you treat the occipital neuralgia the dry eye goes away and again it's because it's not really dry eye it's pain that feels like dry eye 
and it's not. And so in order to figure it out, sometimes you got to have to figure out what other symptom they have and then send them to the right place. And that's hard. I think it's also hard because there's not a lot of pain people out there right now. And so that depending on where you are in the country, that can be really hard to find. Um, and there's a lot of patients, like we've had patients that have had to go to different States to get the type of pain management that they need. Um, and it's not a bunch of opioids, right? It's a lot of trying to figure it out, um, in different ways, but that's why if you look at some of the dry eye studies on neuropathic pain and dry eye, you'll find that people feel better with yoga or they feel better with exercise or they feel better with, and it's because yoga and exercise and all those things work on some of those neurologic mechanisms, the autonomic dysfunction they might have. Nutrition is huge, things like that. Um, so it's a lot of, I, I wish there was like a cookie cutter, like you go here and then you go there and then you go here and you go there, but it's, it's very patient specific. Um, the one thing I will say that, um, I always want to, I have to plug for, if we look at all of the conditions that have dry eye, so regular dry eye, general populations, like 30%, probably going up because of computer use TBI, it's like 40% Parkinson's it's like 50 to 60%. So the other thing I'll always say too, is if the patient, we think Parkinson's actually starts to manifest. We always think like maybe in your fifties or sixties, but actually as a neurodegenerative disease, it probably starts earlier, like your forties and fifties. And I've had a lot of patients in my practice with Parkinson's who have said, you know, I actually had really bad dry eye in my forties and fifties. And then, um, it was never getting better with drops. And then when I got put on L-DOPA, when I got diagnosed with Parkinson's 10 years ago, my dry eye went away and that's because their blink rate is down because of, so that's the big thing, right? If patients, I would say, you know, we'll count blink rate and everyone, but fifties and above definitely count blink rate. If it's really slow, that could be a sign that they might actually have some type of um, problem in the brain with their blink reflex. Oftentimes Parkinson's, other things can cause it. And so the reason their dry eye gets better is because the L-DOPA allows them to blink more, which fixes the reason they had dry eye. Um, and so increasing their L-DOPA will help. So a lot of it sometimes is like, then understanding what are some other symptoms of Parkinson's that might make me think the patient has Parkinson's. Um, and cause you don't want to scare them either. Right. You don't want to be like, Oh, I think you have Parkinson's disease. Cause you have dry eye and you blink funny. Um, but you can always, um, can like refer for a, a workup, right. If they have other symptoms of Parkinson's, I think there's nothing wrong with saying like, Hey, you know, long shot, but I would love, you're not getting better on this treatment. And there's a couple of other things that make me suspicious. Um, I would like to send you to a neurologist and just make sure there's not an underlying neurologic condition that I'm missing. Um, and I think if you present it that way, that that's an easier way to do it. If that really doesn't speak on how, um, you know, treating dry is such a whole body systemic approach. I mean, you're, you're really going into it. I literally never considered increasing someone's eldop. but I would not do that. You know what I mean? Like, this isn't something I would ever thought of. So, uh, just talking about that is, I don't know, just really speaks to treating two things you said, really, really stand out treating patients early to prevent these patients from decompensating into a neuropathic pain situation. Um, you know, I, I am in Boston and I have Dr. Hamra who I refer to for neuropathic pain, which he's very well known in that, in that specific field, but you, you know, saying, you know, referring to a cornea specialist, I think it's very helpful to have somebody that you know, um, that is into treating neuropathic pain, because I don't think that these people, as you said, are all over the place that, um, really care about our neuropathic pain patients. Yeah. So what I ended up doing too, was I actually reached out to, cause I moved to Virginia recently. And so I ended up moving, reaching out to different corneal specialists in the area. 
and just flat out told them, I see a lot, I will see a lot of patients in my practice with neuropathic pain. Do you want to see them? Not all of them said yes. Um, and then, and then, cause the other thing for me was, it's like, I'm also going to be treating the 20 other things of their brain injury or, or whatever else thing they have. And just know when I'm sending you, I just need you to treat that part. <laughs> like I don't need to do all of it. It's not a total punt. It's just a punt of that part because there's part that's outside of my license. I can't prescribe certain things or I don't feel comfortable prescribing certain things. Um, and, and I think that's the other thing too, is if you don't feel comfortable prescribing something, that's okay. I'm not comfortable prescribing a lot of things for, for many reasons, just because of, I like to, you know, especially if certain side effects or there's a lot of other issues, because a lot of my patients are just complicated. So I, I want other people to help kind of co-manage. Um, but the thing is, if you're not going to do it, you need to send it to someone who will. And I think what, what hurts me a little bit is optometry doesn't send to other optometrists. So yes, you can send to a corneal specialist. But the other thing that I also didn't mention that I also do is I also consult with people who are dry eye gurus, right? And ask like, okay, guys, I tried X, Y, Z. What do I try next? Um, and I ask my fellow optometrist, or I will send my patient to another optometrist, um, to be able to do that. So if you're not going to do it, you definitely have to send it to someone who will. And I think that's where we need to be better as a profession because we're worried about losing that patient. And I don't think you'll ever lose the patient. The patient always appreciates when you, you know, recognize you needed to see someone else. Very well said. I think that that is, yeah, we need to refer to each other, support each other. Really, we all have the same end goal in mind. We want our patients to get better. And I love that you just brought so much light to this area because I know that when I first started with dry eye, however many years ago, I would have those patients where it was like, what am I missing? What am I missing, right? And it was probably this big whole kind of neurological piece. And so I think as dry eye is just kind of ramping up in popularity and a lot more people have an awareness of it or are wanting to get into the space and treat it, not forgetting this really important part for some of our patients that you know can really kind of make or break their whole dry management, their whole um, visual needs. So thank you so much for sharing all your information with us. Thanks, Jackie. This was great. And and honestly, a really great way to sort of break all of this down for us. I feel like we could talk a lot longer <laughs> with you about this, but thank you so much for taking the time tonight. Yeah, no problem. Where can people find you if they have more questions or maybe want to hire you for a console? And now for the to the point wrap up. Neurological dry eye is a neuropathic pain that feels like dry eye, but technically isn't dry eye. It is common in patients that have a history of traumatic brain injury. In the office, eye care providers can assess this by doing a simple preparagain test. If the patient still feels some pain, even if it's reduced, after instilling a drop of preparagain, that could possibly indicate a neurological type of dry eye. For these patients, all other dry eye causes need to be ruled out first. Management may often lead to a referral for a corneal specialist or a pain specialist for pain management.